I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13 as we continue our study of the life of Abraham. Last uh, couple of times we've looked at, I'm not going to go into great detail here but because I'll, I'm going to rehearse some of this during the sermon, but God has called Abraham, Abram uh, from his family, from his land, to a new land, given him these promises that we've been talking about this morning. He has obeyed that call and followed. Uh, famine struck the land and he ended up uh, leaving the, the promised land and going down to Egypt. It was a terrible scene. Uh, he, he got into some trouble down there, but the Lord preserved him and he is returning back to the land of Canaan, to the, to the land that God had promised him. And that's where we pick up the reading in Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their, possession, their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and where he built an altar to the Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word and write its truth on our hearts this morning. Well, I can sum up this sermon in the words that we just sang. If you want to look at the God of Abram praise, that little insert, um, the last half, the third line of the second stanza, it says, I all on earth forsake its wisdom, fame, and power, and him my only portion make my shield and tower. That's the point of what I'm saying here this morning. Uh, so if you don't get anything else, you got that. And that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, here, as I make two points this morning, we're going to look at the promises granted to Abram and then the choice granted to Lot. Now, I want you to bear with me for a few minutes and, and stick with my uh, line of reasoning here 
While I briefly explain uh, the theological significance of Abram in the history of redemption, uh, in order to properly apply this passage, we need to have at least a cursory understanding of Abram's place in the way God reveals the gospel to humanity. Otherwise, we will look at the passage like the one before us today, here in Genesis 13, and we'll simply moralize it. When I say moralize it, what I mean uh, is to say something like this, you know, to, come up, to come away from the sermon like this. We should be like Abram. Don't be like Lot. Abram was unselfish. Lot was greedy. And don't hang out with a, with a bad crowd or you'll end up like Lot there in Sodom. And he eventually, obviously, the whole place gets destroyed. That's moralism, and that, you know, that's certainly good advice and things that we should consider and, and follow. But I will remind you, when Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus, you remember that episode after he had uh, risen from the grave? Uh, he appears to two disciples there along the road, and they do not recognize him. He has a glorified body, and so he's there speaking to them, and, and they are talking about uh, Jesus and what all has happened. He, he, they thought he was the Messiah, but he's crucified, and now people are saying that he's risen from the dead, and we don't know what to think. And Jesus comes along with them, and, and he, it says there in Luke that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, he began with Moses, it says, and told them things concerning himself. Now, of course, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that Genesis, the first of those five books, is about him. Genesis 13 is about Jesus Christ. Now, how could that possibly be? We're looking at an episode that uh, seems pretty commonplace or normal to us. Uh, people get into a, a dispute uh, and they're going their separate ways and trying to work things out and, you know, that's the, the, uh, the moral of the story. But no, this, there's so much more going on here in this passage. And we need to understand a bit about Abraham and the promises that were made to him. Now, if you go back to the previous chapter, you look there at chapter 12. In Genesis 12, 1, it tells us that the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What wonderful promises and, and uh, a covenant, actually, God makes with Abram. Now, that covenant is going to be uh, ratified in a ceremony in Genesis 15. We'll get to, that, get to that in a couple of weeks. But here we have God appearing to Abram, and, and Abram leaves his extended family, and he travels to Canaan. He was over there in, in Iraq somewhere, and he, he traveled up to the Syrian-Turkey border and then came down into Canaan. And he, he leaves those places, lands in Canaan with Sarai, Lot, and the people who worked for them. I'm sure they had lots of herdsmen and other servants. And then 12.7 tells us that the Lord appeared to Abram there and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So Abram knew that. This land was his. The promises made to him included land and descendants, but there's also a reason given behind it. Why is he giving him this land and descendants? Why is he turning him into a great nation? Well, it says 
that he is doing this, verse 2 of chapter 12, so that he will be a blessing. Indeed, Abram will be a conduit through which all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And really, that's the most important part of those promises to, to Abram. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abram. Now, Paul picks up this idea and this thought and develops it for us in Galatians chapter 3. And I've given you some of these passages in the outline that I provided. In Galatians 3, 7, Paul says, It is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, all these promises of God were passed down from generation to generation. So Abram, Abram, uh, Abram had received the promises. Isaac was the child of promise. Uh, God appeared to Isaac and reiterated those promises that were made to Abram. Then Isaac had Jacob and Esau, and God worked through Jacob, not Esau. Uh, God reiterated those promises to Jacob, and then to Jacob's children, the 12, which became the 12 tribes of, of Egypt, uh, 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, so it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. He's quoting Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, where he, he repeats this promise after Abraham uh, almost sacrifices Isaac. In you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul says that was the gospel being preached beforehand to Abraham. Now Paul elaborates this a little bit in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So God has made uh, these promises to Abraham, and they're handed down from generation to generation. And in this verse where Paul says... Uh, the offspring of Abraham that receives the promises, that's Christ. I mean, that verse encapsulates just a whole bunch of theology. He sums it all up in one little short statement because there's a lot there. Think of it this way. Abraham's inheritance was a family inheritance that belongs to his descendants. We've already said that. Isaac, Jacob, so forth. But at a number of crucial points in the history of Scripture, God chose several key figures to serve as special heirs who received and distributed Abraham's inheritance to others. In the case of Isaac, he was the special seed in distinction from Abraham's other sons, Ishmael, for example. When Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, God chose Jacob to be the special seed of Abraham and excluded Esau and his descendants. From Jacob came the twelve patriarchs of the tribes of Israel, but among the tribes of Israel several figures were special heirs of Abraham. Moses, for, its, for instance, was the leader and mediator of God's people as they moved from Egypt to the Promised Land. And later, as Israel became a full-fledged empire, David and his sons held a special role of mediating the inheritance of, to Abraham. Now, it's the special role of David and his sons that led Paul to refer to Christ as the last great seed of Abraham because Jesus is the rightful heir of David's throne. He was chosen by God to be the permanent king of his people. We call him King Jesus and he's the great eternal royal seed of Abraham, the Messiah. 
And as such, Christ is the only one through whom anyone else can participate in Abraham's inheritance. No one separated from Christ will ever receive the promises of Abraham. That's why Paul says what he says in Galatians 3.16. So these promises made to Abraham are brought to us through Christ because he is the offspring, the, the seed of Abraham. And those promises that come down from generation to generation come to us when we are united to Christ. That's why Paul says that Genesis 12.3 is the gospel, that all the nations will be blessed. The good news, the gospel is, is the good news about Christ. And people from every tongue, tribe, and nation throughout the entire earth who are united to Christ by faith receive the land and become part of a great nation. We are part of that nation if we have faith in Christ. The writer of Hebrews, when discussing the faith of Abraham and Sarah, you know in that chapter where it's the hall of fame of faith, uh, they, they talk about, they're talking about Abraham and Sarah, and, and he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, and, and, and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So the inheritance to Abraham is this promised land, this promised city. We read about it in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the end. That's the new heavens and new earth. That's the new city, Jerusalem. That's what Abraham and Sarah were ultimately promised, and that's what we're promised, and that's the promises that we received through Christ that were the promises made to Abraham. So we are heirs uh, of that promise. We receive it in the new heavens and new earth one day, and we look forward to that day. They're fulfilled in Christ, the seed of Abraham. It tells us in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So that's what we're looking forward to. Uh, we, will, we will not uh, necessarily uh, inherit that, that land that, that God promised to, to Abram. You know, he was in Canaan. He said, look around. This is it. This is your promised land. Well, in one sense, yes, we are going to inherit that and everything else attached to it, the entire globe. The meek shall inherit the earth, the Bible says. The new heavens and the new earth uh, the, the, the believers, the holy nation is going to receive. Through Christ, we receive these promises. So, with that basis, let's now look at chapter 13 briefly. And in light of this, understand it, what it's saying to us about Christ and about being a follower of Christ. So we see the promises made to, granted to Abraham, the choice granted to Lot. Now, as we see Lot's life, we don't get a lot of information, 
But up to this point, Lot has been connected or united with Abram. He's, he left Ur of the Chaldees with Abram. Uh, he left Haran and paganism with Abram and Sarai. When they left the promised land and went down to the Egypt, Lot went with them. And verse 5 tells us, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. So it's safe to say that because of the connection Abram had with Lot, and that Lot had with Abram, he had been blessed along with Abram. If he hadn't followed Abram out of Haran, he wouldn't have had any blessings. If he hadn't followed Abram down to Egypt, he wouldn't have as many flocks and herds as he ended up with. And we wouldn't have this problem that we're dealing with here in chapter 13. So uh, God told Abram, I will bless you and make your name great. And because Lot has been united to Abram, he has been blessed as well. And they're so blessed that their land can't support their herds and flocks. And plus the text tells us in verse 7 that there were also Canaanites and Perizzites in the land. Not parasites, Perizzites. These people had flocks and herds too. So there was a lot of pressure on the land, a lot of pressure on the grass, a lot of pressure on the wells, a lot of fighting between the herdsmen. So there was conflict. So Abram, in order to preserve peace between them, tells Lot in verse 9, separate yourself from me. Literally, it says in the Hebrew, separate from me. Separate yourself is not there. Separate is a command. Now, Amazingly and magnanimously, Uncle Abram, the elder, the one who is in the, the seat of authority, the power, he lets his nephew Lot, the younger one, make that choice. Separate from me, and you can take whatever you want. If you go this way, I'll go that way. Now, you want to say to Lot, no, don't do that. Stay united to Abram and the promises God made to him. You've been blessed so far in your union with him. Don't spoil it. But Lot's heart is revealed here. Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And then you can picture them up on, a, up on a high place and they can see the land out before them. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Now that may seem like some observation, but there's a, it's revealing to us uh, much of his heart and what he's thinking in his mind. Because this land was not like the garden of the Lord. It's referring to the garden of Eden. And of course, Lot had only been told about the garden of Eden. He didn't know what the garden of Eden was like. He can't even fathom it because it was a sinless place of perfection. But that's what he's thinking. This place, this Jordan, that is the perfect place. Absolute perfection. I must have that. But notice the next phrase. Not only is he comparing it in his mind to the garden of the Lord, it's like the land of Egypt. Now, Egypt wasn't like the garden of the Lord either, but it was very wealthy. And in Lot's mind and heart, he thinks Egypt is the perfect place. He had sojourned down there with Abram and he no doubt witnessed the wealth of Egypt 
and his heart longed for it. So without hesitation, Lot separates himself from Abram for the promises of wealth. His hopes and dreams are wrapped up in wealth and all that it can bring. If I, if I could have that Jordan Valley, I'll have it all. And so he separates himself from Abram and all the blessings that he received from Abram. And it goes on and tells us in verse 12, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. A little foreshadowing for us of what's coming in chapter 18. Lot's heart was set on wealth, and he was willing to sacrifice uh, for it. He was willing to compromise for it, and he ended up there. uh, In the the tents near Sodom and then in Sodom, which is where we encounter him in 18. What does all this have to do with us today? The question we must ask ourselves is, what is your heart's desire today? What are your hopes and dreams? What's the motivating force in your life? And what is your ambition? What in your mind will finally complete you? What is it that you say, if I just had that, then my life would be good? For Lot, it was the Jordan Valley. I don't need Abraham. If I just had that, that would make it all good. For many people, like Lot, it's money and wealth, possessions. For some people, it's status. Other people, it's a relationship. If I could just get married, if I could just have children, if I could just get that job or have this amount of wealth or get this paid off or that, then everything would be like the Garden of Eden. It would be perfect. See, Lot thought wealth would complete him. It would take him back to the Garden, back to perfection. And that's what we all have a tendency to do. Before the fall, mankind knew, we we knew our value. We knew our worth. We knew our purpose. We had a relationship with God that was unhindered by sin. But that was lost because of sin. And now we're trying to rediscover that, to get back to it. What are we worth? What is our purpose? And then we think, oh, if I just had that wealth, that job, that relationship, that status, that would make me complete. I will have arrived But the problem is we're putting an infinite amount of spiritual pressure on a finite created thing. We put the pressure on our marriages, our families, our careers, or or wealth to complete us, and it's like putting a three-ton truck on a one-ton bridge. It's going to collapse. If you think... If I could just get married, then that would, that would be like the Garden of Eden. Everything will, Well, anybody that's married can tell you that's crazy. Not that marriage is not wonderful. It is. But it's not the Garden of Eden. Not while there are two sinners in it. It becomes an imperfect place. And if you say, if I just had a great husband or a, or a great wife, that would make my life complete. You're going to put so much pressure on them, and I'm going to tell you they're going to let you down. And all your dreams and your hopes are going to come crashing down like a, like a three-ton truck on a one-ton bridge. It can't, it can't hold it up. Nobody is that good. Your spouse will disappoint you. Your children will disappoint you. Your career will disappoint you. All these things will disappoint you. Jesus said it best. No one can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, possessions. The word's mammon there. It means stuff. And in our land today, we are all about the stuff. We're so materialistic. People think, oh, if I just had that. And I, look at our debt problems. It's because we live this way. We're trying to find our purpose, our fulfillment in material possessions or wealth, just like Lot. But look at Abram real quick. God had promised him this land, uh, and he's there in chapter 12. You know, he, he makes the journey, follows the Lord. God says, this is it, I'm going to give you this land. Then a famine strikes. Now, what should he have done at that point? He should have stayed there and said, the Lord is going to give me this land. He's, he's promised me descendants, so I'm not going to die. Sarah's not going to die. But what does he do? He hauls it down to Egypt to get help there instead of trusting in the Lord. And he lies. And dare I say, the promises of God are in danger because Pharaoh takes Sarah to be his wife. And how can he have offspring if Sarah's somebody else's wife. So the promises of God may be even in, in jeopardy as, as Abram does this, uh, this unfaithful thing. But God is faithful, and he preserves the promises. He will not allow Abram to blow it. And he sends the, the plagues on Pharaoh's house, and all's discovered, and they leave Egypt. And what is verse Verse 4 and 5 tell us that he does. Verse 4. He goes right back to the place he was before. He goes back to that altar that he built before and he calls on the name of the Lord. He recognizes his error. He said, I blew it, Lord, and I want to get back to that land that you promised. I'm going to call upon your name. You're my God and I want to be your people. He, he, he puts his trust in the Lord. He learns his lessons and returns to that place. And then you can tell that, that wealth is not that important to him because he gives Lot the choice. I think that's why. He's trusting in God's promises. God said, I'm going to give you this land. So he can just sit there and say, okay, Lot, which one do you want? If Lot chooses the one that God's promised, Abram's going to get it anyway. You know, if Lot chooses the other, fine. God's going to take care of him. So he's got trust in God's promises. You see it there. He's grown in his faith from 12 to 13. He loves the Lord and he loves his neighbor. He's loving a lot, saying, you know, well, let's not fight. Let's not, get, let's not let this become uh, something between us. Go where you want to. And he gives them the first choice. It was unheard of in that patriarchal society. But he's reflecting uh, his great faith. His wealth comes in a distant third. He puts God first he puts family next, lot, and then wealth is somewhere down the list, maybe third. He, he's got his perspective right. He's not serving mammon, but serving the Lord. God's promises are infinite and eternal. Whereas wealth and family, children, whatever we might put our hopes and dreams on will collapse because they're finite, God's promises are, fi are infinite and eternal, and they, can, they, they are meant to bear us up. They're promises that, that are ours. We must put our faith there. Now we find out in chapter 19 that Lot's descendants, through his two daughters, become the nations, uh, become the Moabites 
and the Ammonites. You know, Lot, his, the rest of his story is pretty sad. You know, he put his, he put his hope in all that wealth, and what, it ends up ashes by the time we get to chapter 19. As God rains down fire and brimstone on Sodom. And all that beautiful Jordan Valley is no more. So his wealth is gone. And he ends up in a cave with his daughters and through a disturbing incestual relationship. The Moabites and the Ammonites are created. He left the promises of God. He made a bad choice. But one of his descendants has the same opportunity as Lot. It was a woman who was living in Moab, and she married an Israelite. And her, she, she, the brother married another Moabite. So it was two Moabite women and two Israelite brothers and their mother. And the boys died. And so the mother and the two daughters were left there in Moab during a famine. No one to help support them. They hear that there's the opportunity for food in Israel. And so the mother-in-law says, I'm going back to my land. You girls stay here. Get yourselves husbands. And, and you know, be able to be supported. Well, the girls put up a fight. And they don't want to leave her. They love her. And... Finally, one of them is convinced to stay in Moab. But the other clung to her and said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. So she went with her. And she inherited the promises because she clung to that God. And of course, she's Ruth. She became the great, great grandmother of King David and an ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are you clinging to today? Cling to the Lord. Cling to his promises. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Wealth won't do it for you. Only the promises of God that we can have through faith in Christ. Let's pray together.